Navigating a public image can be challenging. Whether you're building a brand, rebuilding your reputation, or just trying to get on the radar, you need the public to trust you. But does the public trust anyone anymore? And has it ever trusted public relations? Welcome to Deep Dive, powered by Coldwater Communications. I'm Tamara Stanners. Justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion have always been of utmost importance. However, these issues have gained significant traction over the last few years. toxic work environments at the same companies that declared Black Lives Matter. Whether it's gender, sexual identity, sexual orientation, race, that can be a huge generator of increased revenue and income that will improve your bottom line. So these companies have no excuse for not including us. An Oshawa man claims he was fired from his job because of his sexual orientation. Donald's refused service to a blind man, and now he is suing the fast food chain. Federal court has ordered Tesla to shell out nearly $137 million to a former employee after he sued the company over a racist and hostile work environment. Walmart is ordered to pay an Oregon man $4.4 million in the so-called shopping while black case. Critics say Amazon's highest paid employees are white and male. Report indicating economic security is out of reach for many women, due in part to persisting gender pay gap. A lot of companies have been quick to promote their commitments, but far fewer work to demonstrate tangible and sustainable actions. Companies were quick to put out LGBT plus clothing or march in pride parades, but only after it became socially acceptable. Statements saying black lives matter, but inside some corporations, black employees say that's not exactly the case. Companies like Disney patting themselves on the back because they have POC characters in their films, but are silent when people point out that these characters are animals for most of the film. It's crazy the statements that many companies come out with, and also the recognition mm -hmm. of things that they're short-sighted on always in the past. Suddenly they get it. Once it becomes popular, Many think they're part of the solution, but are really part of the problem. Words matter. The PR pitfalls of inauthentic narratives and performative allyship are mighty, and the impact on equity-deserving communities is critical. So how should a company approach allyship and their work towards advancing justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion? Why are these issues a top PR industry priority? And how does cancel culture impact companies doing this work? We're about to drop in on a conversation between three communications leaders who are passionate about justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Matthew Sang, co-founder of And Humanity, a justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion-focused marketing agency. Gabrielle Brisebois, Coldwater Communications social media consultant. Anela Goyevich, Coldwater's Director of Accounts and Business Development. Let's dive in. Hi, everyone. Thanks for being here. Hello, hello. Hi. 
Matthew, did you want to introduce yourself and start? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Matthew. I'm the co-founder of Ant Humanity. It's an inclusive marketing communications agency. I'm logging in from the stolen and unseed territories of the Coast Salish people, specifically the Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Musqueam nations. Ever since I was young, I was obsessed with uh, superheroes like DC, Marvel Comics, Spider-Man, Batman, you name it. But I realized at a young age that it looked nothing like the heroes that I idolized so much. So for Halloween, I would dress up as ninjas instead because I was represented as a ninja a lot on TV. So I didn't realize how much this affected my psyche at a young age. But ever since then, I've been trying to reconcile by trying to show that people like me belong on screen and on stage, etc. It's been a huge part of my life and starting this agency was a big way to kind of like reconcile my past, but also help others like my own children and other younger generations. Thank you so much for sharing that. Gabby, did you want to go next? Yeah, so uh, my name is Gabby and I'm here on unceded Indigenous lands in Montreal. My pronouns are she, her, and I am the senior social media consultant at Coldwaters Communication. And as a senior social media marketing consultant, I help businesses and organization develop and implement social media strategies. And I specialize in DEI for social. As a Black woman with a multi-ethnic background, well, my, my dad is white French-Canadian and my mom is Jamaican. It's always been a part of who I am and when I started working in journalism and communication and then social media, I started to realize the significance and the impact of words, tone and sensitivity. And after everything that happened with George Floyd a couple years ago with the Black Lives Matter movement, there's just been, I feel like, an awakening, like a revolution almost on social media, especially. And it's just given a voice and a vehicle for a lot of minorities and BIPOCs, folks that in the past might not have felt as comfortable to kind of like vocalize their sentiments when it comes to race and inclusiveness and diversity. And so I feel lucky to be in the field that I am where I have an opportunity to provide consulting and that voice to people that need it. So that's a bit about why I'm doing what I do. <laughs> Thanks, Gabby. So my name is Nella Goyevich. I go by she, her pronouns, and I am speaking to you today from the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. And I work as the Director of Accounts and Business Development at Coldwater Communications. I am a big believer that we all see from where we stand. And so I want to mention that I speak from the perspective of a white, able-bodied, cisgendered woman, and I'm also a first-generation Canadian. And like many newcomer families, I grew up in a very multicultural part of Toronto and was lucky to have friends from various different racial, religious, and cultural backgrounds. And that really shaped my perspective of the world in an amazing way. And what I noticed from a young age was that my parents, due to their, at the time, very heavy speaking accents as immigrants faced discrimination, and that left a lasting hurtful impact on our family. But then I began to understand how my friends or my friends' parents were discriminated against on a daily basis and treated so much worse than my parents or I. And it really put into perspective how unjust and pervasive that reality is for so many and that I want to always be part of the solution for that. So as a PR account director, I 
am working to create strong relationships between my clients and their target audiences or markets and build those relationships through trust. So I'm not a spin doctor, I'm a strategist. And so if a client wants to talk the talk about justice, equity, diversity, or inclusion, I have to make sure that they can also walk the walk. And that's a big part of considering this lens in public relations for me. I really appreciate all of us taking a second to kind of share where we stand and where we see from. Mm -hmm. I think that the issue is that organizations don't always take that first step to even define what justice, equity, diversity, or inclusion means for them, both personally or in the context of their work. And that can unfortunately lead to being very performative from a communication standpoint. Why don't we unpack that a little bit? You know, performative Jedi work, it's a huge problem in our industry just so that we're on the same page about what performative Jedi work is, I like you to use the example of what happened with Blackout Tuesday and why that was harmful. Essentially, after the murder of George Floyd back in 2020, a lot of brands were putting out kind of this black square of solidarity out on social media, kind of trivializing what the message was really about. And a lot of them were called out because what they were communicating externally didn't match how they were treating their employees internally. So I think it still happens today because a lot of people are doing what we call calendar following. They're looking at different Mm. days of significance uh, throughout the year. And what they're doing with that is on a very surface level, finding something to touch on that relates to their brand. There's Pride Month, there's, you know, Black History Month, National People's Days, uh, you know, there's so many different days of significance that happen every month, every week, sometimes multiple times a month, and everybody's just trying to keep up. And as marketing or communications departments try to keep up, they're realizing that the most that they can do in order to meet all these different days of significance is very surface level work. The problem is that the calendar doesn't stop and the resources don't increase, even though the calendar has stayed the same. So you know, how to avoid something like this. We like to talk about going deep and not wide. What that means is you can't be everything to everyone. And Mm -hmm. it's actually harmful for you to be very surface level in the way you engage with certain marginalized or underrepresented communities. So underrepresented groups would rather you focus on a select few focus audiences, ones that either objectively or even subjectively, as long as you're not defaulting to the dominant lens when making this decision. But deciding on certain focus audiences that you want to elevate and prioritize. So whether it be the Black community, people with disabilities, neurodiversities, whatever it may be, and substantially help their platform. So rather than just style, a lot of substance as well. So going deep and not wide means committing to certain focus underrepresented audiences and building real authentic relationships with them and communicating, like I said, beyond the days of significance that we're kind of told to throughout the year. So I think that's a great way to kind of avoid performative work because realistically, you can't go deep with every single underrepresented community and all the intersections. There's just too many dimensions of difference. So in terms of when it comes to audiences now to why this is super important is that Audiences care not just about the what for things, but the why and the how. You see this lot in Hollywood, you know, when Mulan, for example, was released. So many people were so happy that people like myself as a Chinese Canadian were being seen on screen in all these various different roles. This is the live action Mulan. When it came down to it, it was written, directed, the costume designers, everyone in the crew 
were of the dominant lens. They were Caucasian, probably mm. very experienced, etc. But the story couldn't be told authentically because, you know, without that lived experience, how do you know really what the story is? And obviously they take dramatic liberties with the story, which is okay, but it's difficult when it's not from your community deciding on those dramatic liberties, you can say. So like I said, a lot of audiences were for that specific movie were like well who wrote the script you know who directed it so they care just as much about the how as they do the what and the output thanks matthew that makes a lot of sense i think that if somebody is struggling to make a decision or tell a story that may be indicative that it's not their decision or story to tell or decision to make and giving a marginalized group the opportunity to create their own solutions and tell their own stories is part of the solution. And I wonder, Gabby, from a social media perspective, when you have a client who's asking you to post for all of those days of the year and to participate, how do you navigate that? Well, it's huge, right? Because consumers, followers on social media, your audience in general, we've become almost hyper aware, but also desensitized. It's so much, you know, like we know the drill. There's a national tragedy that affects Black people, LGBTQ+, Asian Canadians, whichever minority group you want to position, fill in the blank. And then the events covered by the media. And all of a sudden, it's getting this, you know, national spotlight and all the businesses jump on it at that time. And so not only do people now become aware of this, like, performative, disingenuous allyship, but it's also extremely harmful, okay, for Black, Indigenous people of color, because some of the things I hear a lot from clients is, I don't know what to do. I don't want to make a mistake. So they get paralyzed, then they don't post, right? Or they decide to just go invisible when it comes to issues instead of posting and then having the other effect. But what we have to acknowledge and be aware of is that as much as we become desensitized to kind of these national headlines, people are dying, right? Like this is real. Like people of color are seeing videos of other people of color, like themselves being killed. That's extremely traumatic. It's heavy and it's something they have to carry with them. And so that mistreatment, we don't have an opportunity to pause. We don't have that opportunity if we want to kind of like take those steps. So I think that a lot of companies, and I agree with Matthew, need to align with causes that are not only important to themselves so that it's authentic, but also to the people that work in their companies and to be aware that we're all part of this community and we don't just leave things at the door when we come into work. Social media is so embedded into everything we do. And so I just think it's important to just know that it's not a trend and that this performative actions that we see on social media, it's trending right now. It's like a common thing that people do. And my biggest message, like I was just saying, is that it can be dangerous to follow those patterns and to mimic that if you're not coming with the knowledge and the education that's necessary when you're posting. Yeah, and it's such a privilege to avoid these conversations mm-hmm. and topics. Like, I've actually had conversation with folks from the dominant lens and they go, look, I don't want to talk about this stuff or engage with this. I'm so burnt out. It's like, can you imagine someone that actually has to live with this every day? Mm-hmm. You having the privilege to treat it as a trend and then That's not right. talk about it for a certain period 
is a complete privilege. Also yes. talking about the fact of like the fear of saying the wrong thing is such a bad motivator mm. for someone to do something that's actually a moral imperative. Always trying to talk to my clients about like, yes, absolutely. You don't want to be called out. Absolutely. It is scary to take a stance on something. However, you don't want that fear to be driving why you're doing this work, right? That's right. You want to do this work because A, as a brand, you have a lot of power. With power comes responsibility. It's a Spider-Man quote. But the idea behind it is like, <laughs> is like you, you have like the ability. Yeah, I love, yeah, I love brand, all the time. On, brand. <laughs> on my brand. But the ability that you have to make change is much more vast and is worth the risk of you potentially being called out. Not that you will be called out, but the thing is that Stop focusing on what could happen in a negative fashion and focus on what all the good that you can bring by committing to this work. And that's a frame of mind that's very difficult from folks that come from the dominant lens because they've seen a lot of this stuff, quote unquote, backfire, but they're not realizing it's because often people that are saying the wrong thing are ignorant and are not even aware of what they're saying. So you even worrying about it or being concerned about saying the wrong thing is that first step. Just let's shift that frame of mind into something more positive. I couldn't agree more with you, Matthew. And I think there's this pervasive fear now of cancel culture. The risks of doing the work inauthentically are higher than ever. And there's a lot of, I will say, white people who are scared of getting canceled. But the sad thing is, is that instead of actually trying to use that energy and put it towards doing the work authentically and actually consulting with communities and getting to the root of what solutions people can make for themselves and passing the mic to marginalized communities. They're using that fear and I think being even more performative and checking the box. And like you say, you can't be everything to everyone, right? So going narrow and deep rather than wide and shallow is, I think, the best advice that you can give. But a lot of organizations aren't willing to put in the work or the resources. And I think that it becomes a lot more manageable when you can tie to your strategic objectives as an organization, which communities you really want to connect with. And how can you work to actually change your organization systemically so that that is a place that is both inviting and is retaining diverse people? Because that is the only way I think is when you fix your insides that you can fix those outsides. To be honest, most of the time when I'm going into a room of a marketing department, we usually work with medium, large size brands or government funded brands, whatever it may be. And everyone is white. And even if it's diverse, it's only diverse at the lower levels. And that's just something I see. A lot of what I hear of is, like we say, not wanting to say the wrong thing, not wanting to almost understanding their power and not wanting to use it wrong, which is kind of the right point of view. So again, shifting that perspective. But cancel culture comes up a lot. Not that they're directly saying, I don't want to be canceled. It's more like, I don't want to be called out and I don't want to be the one that causes our brand to be called out or canceled or whatever like that. So there's a lot of fear in terms of that. But I always say cancel culture has such a negative connotation because it's so extreme. But it's mm -hmm. really just taking accountability for the impact that you make. The problem is that although people have the right intent, they don't know how to translate that into authentic impact. So even though their intent is well, they may say something that causes the wrong impact. So it's really just educating them or our clients like, if you want to do this thing, this is how you translate into the impact. And it's often not what they were originally intending to say or how they were going to communicate. So it's really just education there. And it's not perfect. And that's okay. But 
the way that people see cancel culture is kind of like we're living in this dystopian world where, you know, excessive and unnecessary cancellations where really it's just people being held accountable. And because we're so often ignoring injustices and ignoring justice mm-hmm, is so mm-hmm. common that even something as simple as, you know, your actions have consequences requires mm-hmm. people to focus on the negative. And so in many ways, it's such a ridiculous notion because the people getting canceled, they deserve it. And if you're already afraid of being canceled and you're afraid of how things come out and you're afraid of the impact you make, I always say it's akin to parenting. If you're worried about being a good parent, you're already halfway to being a good parent. A lot of the people being canceled could not care less. They're not only ignorant, but they're saying things purposely or more importantly, they're doing things that they know are wrong. It's just they used to be able to get away with it. You look at the people that have been canceled recently, like Adam Levine, he's straight up cheating on his wife. Maybe 20 years ago, you cheat on your wife and you're fine. You still get hired to, or you still make music or whatever that is. Mm -hmm. So a lot of this is just a very extreme reaction to something that is really just your actions have consequences. We're catching up to our social norms. Yeah, exactly. We're catching up to what it should be. And people are making it sound like we've swung the pendulum so far this way. But like I said, the people that are being canceled deserve to be canceled. You can't go through a decade or even three years or two years of doing something wrong that you know is wrong and then being like, oh, yeah, I apologize and all is fine. Well, yeah, maybe that worked 20 years ago, but not anymore. I think that if you have a client who is really trying to do the work, there's a difference between really trying to do the work and making a mistake versus trying to check a box and making a mistake, right? If you're really trying to do the work, you come from a place of understanding, at least some form of understanding and knowledge where if you need to tweak what you're doing and apologize and take ownership for a mistake, you're in a much better position to do that when you're actually doing the work than when you're just checking a box. So my advice is to not be so scared. My advice is to put in the work because if you're doing that, there's a lot more wiggle room for you to make mistakes because they're honest and because you're still trying. And that's what this is about. On social media, there's that opportunity of anonymity, right? So it gives the opportunity for like large groups of people to come together, but they are minorities in the sense to come together to put their voice out there without being individually targeted. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's the thing, too, with cancel culture as it relates to social media, because you can jump on a hashtag like me, too. And you could share your story with this hashtag without the fear of being fired, losing your job, Mm -hmm. being harassed, targeted. You know what I mean? Like there's the other side of it, too. And just because you're called out doesn't mean you're erased. Okay, you have that opportunity to take responsibility, to take accountability and grow. And as a matter of fact, that is probably going to even build you more loyalty because it shows the transparency and the fact that we're all humans. And that cancel culture, there's that intersection. It doesn't mean because you're black, you can't get canceled. It doesn't mean that you can't take that opportunity if you're called out then this goes for businesses to just acknowledge the fact that, yes, you made a mistake, but you know what? I want to learn and depending on the severity of the mistake and I want to grow and eliminate that shame factor, I think, because that's the thing too with cancel culture. People feel like, okay, are you shaming people, canceling and then shaming them? Where's the line? 
shame is not an effective tool for changing hearts and minds and changing behaviors, right? right? So at the end of the day, for myself as a communicator, it's not only about taking accountability, it's about doing it quickly and doing it authentically. Because the idea of stealing thunder, that's a theorist, Timothy Coombs, who is a crisis manager. Stealing thunder means you're taking control of the narrative before somebody else can, right? So if you've made a genuine mistake and you want to correct that mistake, you should have no problem coming out and saying, my bad, I'm going to do better. This is what I'm doing to do better and keep going. Like this is your learning journey. But at the end of the day, if you don't do that, yeah, you maybe you do deserve to get canceled. To talk on your points, Gabby, lived experience isn't enough. We always say that. You can have internalized racism, internalized homophobia, internalized anything. So having lived experience doesn't mean you have a free pass to say and do whatever you want. Um, And there's so many people that talk about, oh, we can't tell jokes anymore. Such a ridiculous notion because comedy evolves. Like comedy back in the 80s is different than it was in the 90s and it keeps evolving. So just because people are having an adverse reaction to change and that's kind of a problem, but... Things that were maybe okay and funny in the 90s and the 2000s are not funny now. And people need to accept that and evolve just like comedy evolves. Because if you tell jokes that were funny in the 80s and you complain that it's because of cancel culture or something else that's not funny now, it's just the mere fact that you don't know how to evolve your comedy. People are starting to realize that things that are funny for one person maybe is truly traumatic and negatively impactful for another community. And that's what the evolution of comedy is and that's okay but if you don't know how to evolve beyond that then really you're just being a bully i'm realizing that so many people just don't know how to apologize they don't Mm. take accountability they don't have the right tone they gaslight their audiences thinking that they're stupid enough to accept yeah it's stupid enough to accept their half-baked apologies and again it goes back to the fact that your actions have consequences and it means you have to say sorry and Sometimes saying sorry is not enough because you've said sorry poorly. Like anybody that's been in a relationship, your partner or someone does something, pisses you off and you go, oh, I'm sorry. You think that solves everything? <laughs> like, no, saying I'm sorry is not enough. No. You need to prove it. You need to know that your actions have consequences and you need to either make up for it or do better. So I think as a society, we've maybe been spoiled in the sense that we haven't taken accountability for all the things we done and said in the past. And it kind of brings me to this idea of authentic narrative. How do we navigate in a culture where there is cancel culture and there is consequences for your actions? For me, this is a really pertinent topic because communications for me is that vessel to the outside world, right? For an organization, for a person. And there are really very real issues that come up in PR because it is extremely white, female dominated. Leger did a study in 2021 that 84% of executives are white in PR. And so the stories are being told from that perspective and it's not their story to tell, right? And not only will it come through as inauthentic as a narrative, but it can Mm -hmm. cause so much harm to the people who should be telling their own stories from their own perspective. So you see a lot of organizations that think they're doing something good. And in some cases, sure, hearts might be in the right place. Somebody might want to be an ally, but you're not going beyond the surface level. And my feeling is that happens because they lack this understanding of why what they're doing is often causing more harm than good because it's savior storytelling. That is what it is, right? You're using your privilege and your platform and your resources to craft narratives for marginalized groups instead of passing the mic to marginalized groups and they're putting themselves in the shoes of the savior and that group, people who need to be saved, you're positioning them that way and you're stripping them of even more power and adding 
to oppression and pushing those people further along the margins. So I think there's this immense responsibility with public relations in particular. If you are the voice for an organization, how you position yourself and what impact that actually has on people in this world, I think is a massive responsibility. So we try to take that very, very seriously in our line of work. Yeah. Nothing about us without us, what we always say. If you follow that and follow that genuinely, then, you know, that's half the battle. Talking about truth and authenticity, especially on social media, where it feels like, you know, everything you're looking at, you don't know what's true, what's not true. There's this veneer. But sharing stories and storytelling is part of people's culture. So it's very, very layered. And I feel like with social media, there's also something we are all noticing a lot, what we term as culture vultures. And it's something where people or brands or companies appropriate Black, Asian, brown culture, whether it be the vernacular or dance moves or trends or whatnot, and reappropriate it and then showcase it on their social media. So you'll see things like, hey, girl. Like, not to say that this is, like, exclusive to Black people, but, like, it's just an example of a vernacular, like a Black slang, you know what I mean? And then what happens is that when it comes time to really back up the issues that affect these cultures that they're appropriating, they're silent. That's right. So that's another layer of the coin when it comes to truth and authenticity. And especially with TikTok, that's just me talking from like a social media perspective. When TikTok took over, you'll see a lot of these influencers take over these TikTok dance moves. And then it becomes this trend. And then I'll have companies that will come to me like, oh, should we do like a dance move for like our end of year or just follow Mm -hmm. on this TikTok trend? And I'm always like weary because I know that those trends come from Black teens that Mm. don't have the social clout as like some of these other social media superstars, you know, that's culture vulturing, where you kind of like take away from the culture and reappropriate it as your own when it's not. And it's extremely harmful. And it's just, to me, the height of cultural theft. And we see that a lot on social with a lot of influencers and followers and whatnot. So there's that too. We're talking about like authentic narratives for me on social is important to mention. Absolutely. And I think social media is inherently exploitative because people don't have accountability again for taking other people. It's so hard to track like who originated this. So people kind of take advantage of that fact. You know, we had a lot of conversations internally, and it's actually a part of our book. We just released the book, Authentically Inclusive Marketing. We have a chapter or at least a section in there that's about cultural appropriation versus cultural appreciation and the nuanced mm. difference in that. Yes. I'm so sorry. I have to go, so I can't talk okay. about it in terms of it, but it's super Thanks, interesting. Matthew, yeah. it was yeah. great connecting with you. Yeah, great, great connecting. meeting you. Sorry I can't be here longer. Yes. Bye, no, everyone. I really appreciate it. We'll stick around. Bye, Matthew. You both. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Maybe we could talk about gatekeeping in communication and what that looks like, because especially in PR, who, I mean, essentially are the gatekeepers? How does that look like? Who defines that? Well, the interesting thing is that, you know, you're pitching media outlets and certain media outlets appeal to certain audiences, right? And a lot of the top outlets appeal to that kind of boomer white population. And that actually 
gives perhaps a reputation or a brand to those outlets. And I'm not saying that, you know, there's not amazing journalism happening in some of those outlets, but at the end of the day, that is primarily told from the lens of white journalists, right? And because we know that journalists, I don't want to say rely on PR for pitches, you know, we're just there to hopefully get a story out to them. And they do a lot of that work on their own. But if, what was it, 84% of PR folks in Canada are white, then you're getting stories pitched to you from the perspective of a white person. And so even before you start trying to tell that story and uncover the truth, I know journalists are truth tellers, right? Like that is your job. But you are going at it from the perspective of potentially 84% white people pitching you. So something to think about, it's, you know, from a gatekeeper perspective, there's a lot of responsibility that comes with giving an idea to the media to ensure that you've thought about what lens you're writing from before they get to it. And I don't think that maybe that's something that's commonly done. We definitely try to do that in our work, but as a rule of thumb, you know, what about for you? Like, what does gatekeeping look like in social well, media? Well, I find specific to DEI, I always ask myself, like, when I'll join podcasts or I'll see a YouTube clips about organizations that are talking about DEI, and I tend to see so many white DEI consultants, <laughs> you know, in a lot of organizations. <laughs> and I feel so confused I'm talking about like the Fortune 500 companies. Mm. You know what I mean? Like these are companies that can afford to hire DEI consultants. What it makes me think is that there's power in storytelling. There's power in controlling the narrative. And when you let go of that power and you give it to the hands of people who don't share the same maybe viewpoints as you or the same prerogative or are not other white people, I think there's a fear that you're losing some kind of control. And when you feel like you're losing control, you're no longer in that position of power. And so when you're keeping it all within that network of people that you know, like a white perspective, then you're not offending anybody. You're not having those difficult conversations. It's very surface based. No, you're not doing the work then, right? If you're not having difficult conversations, you're not doing the work. You're not. And I think for me, the biggest thing is that I feel like a lot of companies lose sight on is that what you're seeing today is not going to be what you're going to see tomorrow or in the future. Demographics are changing at an extremely rapid pace. You're speaking to your consumers, you know what I mean? To your followers, to the people who are going to be purchasing your products. And so... I just feel there's a very like narrow right now focus when it comes to a lot of social media marketing. Like, okay, these are our consumers now. This is who makes the majority of our buyers right now. Instead of preparing and focusing for the future. And, you know, if we're taking out the right thing to do, like the moral clause of just being good people and doing what's right, you know, if we eliminate that and we talk about like the bottom line as a business, you can't escape the fact that in years, the majority is not going to be white. Right. And so what are you doing as a business to actually be sustainable about how you approach diversity, equity, and inclusion? I think that, you know, this idea of holding on to power is also the idea of taking up space, 
right? And like people who feel like they don't want to share the space with people who don't look and think like them. Well, listen, if you're any sort of an organization or a business, you are definitely reaching people who don't look and think like you in some way, shape or form. And if you're doing the the diversity, equity, inclusion work at a surface level, it is so unsustainable that I just can't comprehend how a business leader from a continuity perspective or a business planning perspective can ever think that this is a fad or a trend and how much of a disservice they're doing themselves by not doing it sustainably. And I think the only way to do it sustainably is to do it for real. And like we've been saying, you know, pick a few groups that you want to learn about, that you want to reach and, you know, do the damn work. (laughs) That's at the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. And as an ally, don't monopolize the emotional energy. Don't profitize off that, you know? Yeah. I think the biggest takeaway I could give to listeners or brands or leaders is to listen. It seems so simple. I always ask myself, you know, when people share their stories with me about something that's happened in their lives in any shape, way, or form, and they're sharing their story, who am I to question their experiences? You know, I'm here to listen. And especially in social media, I just feel like it's like a vessel. If you want to share stories of, you know, people in the BIPOC community or people that are visually impaired or that have hearing loss or mental health conditions, let them share their stories. Mm-hmm. They're there. They're, they exist. Connect with them in an authentic way and allow them to have that platform and share it from their perspectives. But most importantly, pay them. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> okay. oh I'm so oh, glad you said them, that. Please, please pay them. Please. This, this is such an issue because people <laughs> expect uh, pay, oh, pay, pay people pay for them. their work. I mean, pay them, please. And not like, it's not a bargaining system. This is taxing, emotionally taxing. Please, yeah. I'll get clients who will tell me, okay, well, can you connect with them and see, you know, if they're willing to just do this because it helps with their followers. And I'm like, I no, don't I feel not. comfortable. <laughs> yeah, I don't feel comfortable this is emotional labor. It's extremely taxing work and it deserves to be compensated. And I don't feel like that should be something that people tiptoe around or it's, oh, I can't make, can we, or try and navigate around it? No, no. Pay people, especially BIPOC, for their work. And don't approach it, especially on social media. Don't DM somebody of color in exchange with bartering systems. Come with the highest echelon that you can afford mm-hmm. within your company. Allow them to have creative rights within context, okay? And make sure that whoever you're connecting with that's a part of the community aligns with your brand messaging. That's another thing too, and Matthew touched on that. Like you can't be part of everything you're going to stretch yourself thin. It's unrealistic. And actually it's even dangerous because it looks inauthentic. You know, Mm -hmm. it looks performative. It looks like you're jumping this bandwagon and you're just trying to be everything to everyone. So as a brand, figure out like, what are the issues that really speak to you and your Mm -hmm. company mission statement and your brand, and then do the research, listen and connect. 
That's so well said. And I think the other thing to keep in mind is that there are so many differences within communities. So to say, oh, I'm going to try to connect with the Black community. Well, that can mean a lot of different things. There are Black people from all over this world or, you know, Indigenous people. And Indigenous people are not one people. There are so many different peoples across this land. And I think as well, when it comes to reimbursing people for their time, that can really vary between different cultures and Indigenous in particular, the reimbursement and the kind of Indigenous cultural competency that you need to be able to effectively and respectfully connect with certain communities. So that is, you know, it's just another argument for choosing, really targeting the kind of communities that you want to connect with and not doing that just to do it, doing it so that it's a part of how you run your business. And I guarantee you that will only make your business stronger and it'll help you to reflect your outsides to your insides, right? By fixing your insides first. If I could leave people with one piece of advice, it's that don't hire a PR firm that's just going to do anything you ask them to do. When it comes to diversity and equity, inclusion and justice work, you really need to think about what it is that you're saying and doing and how externally... How does that reflect what you're actually doing internally? And it's hard, right, when you're hired as a consultant, you're working with a client, you're not part of their internal comms team, communications team. Mm -hmm. So you don't have an oversight over their operational needs. You know, that's why I argue that communications and PR professionals in particular should be part of that management team, right? They should have a seat at that table Yes, because at the end of the day, PR people are called in a crisis a lot of the time, right? So right, you messed right. up internally. Let me put out the fire by saying some nice things out there. No, that is not effective PR, right? And what should be done is you bring us in earlier so that we actually can see what is being done internally and how do we reflect that story. And if maybe that story is ugly and we have to fix that from the inside before I can tell the story about it that, you know, isn't so ugly. So, you know, beauty comes from the inside. <laughs> I think that's yeah, the moral I, of the I, story. It's true. You're absolutely right. It's like you can't escape the fact that it's going to be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. It's going to be uncomfortable. It is. It is. It's going to be hard. It's hard work. It's continuous. It's not like A to Z. It's that's ongoing right. work. I'm a strong believer that when you push through that uncomfortable barrier, on the other side is growth. That's right. You're going to grow in so many ways, not only from a financial standpoint for your business, but as a person. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times clients will come to me and they'll be like, oh, make my social media more diverse. And I'm like, well, make your team more diverse. <laughs> and <I'll> yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm it's like, two-way street. it's two way street. It's true. It's going to be messy, but that's what we have to do to get to that side to the other Mm -hmm. side the sustainable and the authentic side i love that yes oh such a great discussion this has been an eye-opening and honest conversation with lots of takeaways for how companies can make sure they're part of the solution in their pursuit of justice equity diversity and inclusion but what happens when artificial intelligence chooses our solutions for us Considering that algorithms can be biased based on who builds them and how they're used, what does this mean for consumers' freedom of choice? We have an AI expert who's ready to dive into these choppy waters on the next episode of Deep Dive. 
Subscribe to Deep Dive for new episodes every month. For more information and social pages, visit coldwater-communications.ca.